1: the last two weeks, we have presented to you the prosecution's case against Sandy Melgar. You've now heard firsthand Sandy's first police interrogation, which is what led the police to suspecting her to begin with, and then you heard from prosecutor Colleen Barnett, who made her case for guilt to you. At this point, this season has been somewhat one-sided. We've done something that we typically haven't done before, in presenting the guilty side of this argument first. And now it's time to see if the investigation holds up under scrutiny. And this is also a little bit out of order for us. Typically, before we get to this point, we cover the crime scene and develop a profile, and even take a deep dive into all of the police documents. But with this case, things are a little bit different. This investigation is the closest thing that we've ever done to real-time crowdsourcing. You're getting information at the same time I get it. So far, we've already obtained a lot of crime scene photos and a lot of documents. There's also still a lot that we don't have. By the time you hear this episode, hopefully Mike and I will have been to the district attorney's office in Houston to get copies of the rest of the police and the prosecutor's file. We're tying all this in with our trip down to Texas for Edward 8's release... And then we'll really begin breaking down this crime scene and this crime and the investigation, trial, and conviction. But since we don't have all of those documents and photos yet, we're going to take a little bit of a different route this week. What I'm sure you noticed while listening to Colleen Barnett break down the case against Sandy, there isn't much direct evidence. The entire case is both circumstantial and even speculative. As Sandy's attorney, Max Seacrest, said at trial, this case is heavy on theory, and short on evidence. So since the bulk of the state's case revolves around a theory of motive and assumptions about Sandy and Jim's relationship, we're now going to give you the other side of that story. In today's episode you're going to hear an interview with a very close family friend of the Melgars, Stephanie Davies. Stephanie grew up in the same Jehovah's Witness kingdom hall as Sandy, Jim, and their daughter Liz. She knows the family intimately, and she has a fresh perspective on what part the witnesses played in the Melgars' lives. After a quick break for our only ad, we're going to present to you the other side of the story as told by Stephanie. Today's episode is sponsored by Stamps.com. These days you can get practically everything on demand, just like our podcast. You listen whenever you want to, when it's convenient for you. So why are you still taking trips to the post office to mail letters and packages, when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? If you haven't tried Stamps.com yet, you need to give them a shot, because it really is a game changer. At the beginning of every month, Mike and I ship out all of our t-shirts and hats to our Patreon subscribers, and that process could eat up an entire day. But because of Stamps.com, we're able to go through the entire process in a fraction of the time, and we never have to leave the office. We do it all right here from our computer and printer, we set the box outside for the mail carrier to pick it up, and we're done, and we're back in business. No trips across town, no waiting in line, and we don't even have to do our work when the post office is open. With Stamps.com, you can access all of the amazing services of the post office right from your desk 24-7 when it's convenient for you. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, using your own computer and printer. Then the mail carrier picks it up, and that's it. Just click Print Mail, and you're done. It couldn't be easier. Stamps.com is a product that we use here in the NBI studios almost every single day. And I don't know how we would even operate without it anymore. And right now, use truth for this special offer, which includes up to $55 in free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in TRUTH. That's Stamps.com. Enter TRUTH. Okay, Stephanie. First of all, can we start off with you explaining your relationship with the Melgars?
0: I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness as well, so um, our families went to the same congregation, and um, Liz, the you know their daughter, was I, I want to say I don't even know how much younger she is than me, maybe, maybe ten years, but she was closer to my sister in age. Um, so she would come over all the ho- to the, our house all the time, and. Um, Actually, when Sandy was first diagnosed with lupus, I think that she ended up going to Greece or something for some special treatment, and we babysat Liz while they were gone for, you know, however long that they were gone. So, you know, us, our parents were good friends, and we were at their house all the time when I was growing up, and, you know.
1: And that relationship continued on into adulthood, right? Or at least after this incident, you guys kind of reconnected?
0: Yeah, yeah. When... We reconnected actually on Reddit <laughs> because there are, you know, groups for ex-Jehovah's Witnesses. And so it's the kind of thing that most people aren't really able to understand unless they've been through it. And, you know, so, I mean, you look for support in that. And we recognized each other on the group and, you know, started, you know, talking and messaging again. But I'd always kind of had some sort of contact with Sandy more so than Liz actually over the years because there was a lady that was, um, one of Sandy's best friends and she had, uh, she had also kind of been like a, almost like a second mother to me growing up. My household was sort of chaotic and, um, they kind of acted as like a refuge for me and tried to sort of intervene. And so I would see Sandy a lot throughout the years whenever I would go and, you know, spend time with, with that friend.
1: Okay, so I, I guess that's a good place to start for us is, so you knew Sandy very well. How would you describe Sandy? What is your impression of Sandy just in general as, just as a human being?
0: I mean, when I was a kid, I remember thinking of them as, she and Jim both, as just very vanilla. You know, I mean, I was like a young teenager, I just thought they were boring, honestly. Right. <laughs> I mean, they're just, they were just like normal, nice people, you know, they were always friendly and always, you know, she was never rude to me or anything. And, um, I remember, I remember them laughing a lot.
1: Sandy and Jim.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or, I mean, just whenever we were over there and, you know, the families were spending time together, like I just kind of, I pictured them, you know, especially Sandy just laughing and having fun. And then when I got older, after I had been, I wasn't shunned. I was, um, publicly reproved is what it's called. You know, my, like, it Facebook came out and, like my own brother didn't have me on his Facebook, but Sandy reached out to me and she added me as a member of her family. And oh, okay. that's like beyond touching when your own family doesn't really have that much to do with you, you know? And so, I mean, that meant a lot to me. Like, she would just do things like that, that were, I mean, she was a kind person. She is a kind person.
1: So let's talk about, uh, you said you were, uh, I forgot the term you just used, but um, you, you've left the the Jehovah's Witnesses. Let's talk about that. And, and going into this knowing that, you know, this obviously is a, is a bit of a touchy subject. You know, I don't like to talk ill of anyone's <laughs> faith, regardless of what it is. Mm-hmm. But, but in this instant you have a an inside knowledge of not only the Jehovah's Witnesses that uh, that the Melgars were involved with, but also how they interacted with them and and how they handled mm-hmm. some of the rules and things like that. So when you left the, Je- what was that term you used again?
0: Publicly reproved. It means that my privileges were removed. It's, they make an announcement during one of the meetings that you know this person has been publicly approved and is basically no longer considered, like, fit association, kind of. hmm And so, which, I mean, that whole thing was kind of weird. Yeah, I was 14 years old, and I still had to go to all the meetings. You know, but people will speak to you. I was never baptized, so that's why I didn't have to be disfellowshipped. mm mm-hmm. Um, But people will speak to you if you're not disfellowshipped. They just don't, they can't really hang out with you because you're bad association. So when I went and I made the announcement that night, it was almost like, you know, everyone was coming up and comforting my mother, you know, like in tears and stuff as if I had died. And I was sitting right there just kind of like, oh, my God, this is so weird.
1: And if you're not comfortable sharing this, you don't have to. But I'm curious, what does a 14-year-old do that causes that to happen?
0: (laughs) I mean, I was pretty, there's a lot of rules growing up as a witness, you know. You're, you're not really allowed to associate with other kids at school. You can't really participate in extracurricular activities. Um, you can't, uh, you can't go to school dances. You can't do any of the holiday stuff. You can't, you're really sort of isolated. And so your only friends are the people in the congregation, you know, and doing normal kid things is you get in trouble, you know, like, um, I remember, uh, I had to run away from home to go to the eighth grade dance, you know?
1: <laughs> right.
0: But I was very stubborn and strong-willed and sort of, you know, independently minded. And, uh, I rebelled fairly early. And so by the time I was 14, I was pretty much doing what I wanted to do. I had just, um, I had, whatever I did, I decided that the consequences were worth it. You know, so I didn't even really try to hide anything. I just had to try to get away with it. And so I had a boyfriend at school. And, um, you know, we thought uh, that we were in love and we were going to be together forever. All right. And uh, so we lost our virginity to each other. And, um, you know, I didn't really try to hide it. I asked my parents if I could please be put on birth control. And they said no because they didn't want to condone it. And, um, and then they went to the elders to tell them that I had had sex. And uh, so I had to have an elders meeting with three men where, you know, they talked to me about um, the fact that I had had sex and if I was intending to continue having sex and, you know, you have to talk about exactly what you did. And, um, I mean, it's pretty awkward, you know, for Mm -hmm. a 14-year-old girl talking to three grown men about your sex life, you know? Right. And since I wasn't exactly sorry or, you know, promising that I wasn't going to keep doing it, then, you know, they had to they had to do what they had to do.
1: Okay. And that was from the way you're describing it was a very big deal in the church. Like I said, people were consoling your mother because this happened to her mm-hmm. daughter. Yeah. I want to be respectful and use the proper terminology and I was told that you don't call it a church. So right, th- so the to Kingdom Hall. Right, so was, mm-hmm. it, was it? Was this all the same Kingdom Hall that the Melgars went to? Yeah. Okay, and so, so they were there for that, and then, so how did your family react to that?
0: I mean, my family. I mean, to this day, I they moved away. They moved out of state when I was seventeen, and um, I stayed here, and so we haven't even. You know, lived in the same state for that long. And, um, they've really kind of not been a part of my life more than they have been. You know, they, we talk every so often, but it's not, you know, we don't spend a lot of time together. I mean, my, I have two kids that, you know, are 16 and 18. And I think they've met my brother maybe twice, three times. Okay. Um, met my mom, you know, maybe five, six times ever. So it's just, uh, they've just kind of not really, I started trying to live with friends, basically, as soon as that happened. Mm -hmm. And I think it was easier for them to let me, you know, so that they didn't really have to deal with it. So I kind of, I haven't really lived at home that much since then.
1: Okay. Now, if we can talk a little bit about the, the rules, because as you know, the prosecutor in this case used the Jehovah's Witness faith as... Motive saying that Sandy would have killed Jim because she couldn't get divorced because if she got divorced, right. she'd be excommunicated, and so uh, there's a lot of layers there to kind of unpack one you know one being did she have friends who were not witnesses, and would she be able to do that and what are their their feelings on divorce and and how would all of that that play out i mean I, how do you feel about that whole idea of that being the motive?
0: I don't know if um, if um Sandy would have friends outside of the religion. I mean, some people do, some people don't. It's not really obviously encouraged. You know, they obviously frown upon divorce, but um, except in cases of cheating, um, that's a, a valid reason for divorce where they're, you know, they wouldn't really give you issue. They might encourage you still to work it out, but you wouldn't, you know, it, it wouldn't be so frowned upon. In other scenarios, as far as I know, the, you, you can get divorced and maybe they, maybe they'll privately or publicly reprove you or something. In some scenarios, maybe if you were the one who cheated and wanted the divorce, maybe then there would be an issue. But from what I remember, a lot of times the only, the only time that you would really be disfellowshipped for that is if you got divorced and then you tried to marry someone else. You know, Liz was disfellowshipped. And she still had a very close relationship with her family. So, to me, in terms of that being, you know, her fear of being disfellowshipped, making murder worth, you know, that is sort of ridiculous because she still would have had her family, her daughter, her grandkids, you know, and that's if she got disfellowshipped. And when you do get disfellowshipped, you can always be reinstated. It typically takes about a year. You know, you have to still keep going to all of the meetings, you know, basically show them that you're sorry and you you want to be a witness, and then, you know, they make an announcement that you're reinstated, and everything goes back to normal. So it wouldn't even be a permanent thing. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps)
0: Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: So let's talk about the disfellowship for a minute. So first of all, so if I understood you right, typically with just a divorce, you wouldn't be disfellowshipped for that.
0: Yeah, not necessarily. Okay. I mean, I think it would depend on the circumstances, but it's not just a a given.
1: Okay. And then what does it mean to be disfellowshipped? Like you said, Liz was disfellowshipped. Uh, Mm -hmm. And my understanding of that has always been that that means the other witnesses won't communicate with them at all. But obviously, she did still communicate with her family. Sandy and Jim were both witnesses, and they still... Had a close relationship with Liz even after she was disfellowshipped. So, what, what is it mm-hmm. supposed to mean to be yeah. disfellowshipped?
0: Typically, if it's not a family member, then you wouldn't talk to the person. They look at it almost like a timeout. You know, um, mm-hmm. they're trying to teach you something, they're trying to make you feel the loss of your community so that hopefully you'll pull it together and come back. You know, they, they think that they're doing it out of love. When you, if you go up to someone and you say hi to them and they, they are supposed to immediately tell you that they're disfellowshipped, and then, you know, you would just kind of, okay, sorry, and, you know, go your, your own way.
1: So in, in last week's interview, we heard the prosecutor, Colleen Barnett, explaining her thoughts about the Jehovah's Witnesses and some of their rules. And, you know, as awkward as it was to talk about, she brought it up as part of the case of guilt against uh Sandy that there were sex toys on the bed and she said that sex toys are against the rules for Jehovah's Witnesses does that as a former witness does that resonate with you is that correct
0: I mean I don't really remember hearing that honestly you know it, as far as I remember if you're when you're married it there's there's not that much direction given as far as your sex life
1: right and that's the case of most at least that I'm familiar with, Christian religion, religions, different denominations are faced that, you know, what happens between a man and a wife in their bedroom is kind of between them.
0: Right. And there are a lot of things in the Jehovah's Witness religion that they consider to be conscience matters. Like, they'll sort of, you know, offer you things to think about. You know, so that's where the, the difference in personality comes in, because some people hear that, oh, that's a conscience matter. And for them, you know, the more rule following types, you know, they're going to take it to the extreme of, you know, okay, well, you know, my conscience won't let me do that. But then you have others that are like, okay, well, I don't really feel like that's a big deal. So, you know, I don't feel really the need to stop that or not do that.
1: Right. And one of the things that I wonder if it falls into that category, you know, the the prosecution made the the point about, you know, she can't get divorced, and and it's funny what you said. Based on my, um, I used to study the Christian theology quite a bit years ago. That the divorce is not necessarily the sin; it's the remarriage. So, right. so that didn't make sense because you know, in God's eyes, according to them, all you're still married to that other person, but you you can't. Right? Exactly. Yeah.
0: So at that point, it's almost like you're committing adultery.
1: Right, because you know it was you know the 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 basis is uh, the biblical verses saying that you know what God has joined together no man can put a no man can tear apart, so they're basically exactly. not acknowledging the divorce so I, I thought that was strange that she would be disfellowship for getting divorced, but one thing that I was wondering about was while she's making this this argument about a, a potential divorce as a motive, they both sandy and Jim who was an elder were drinking alcohol and I don't know what the I have some friends years ago that were that were Jehovah's Witnesses, and I remember them saying they, they don't drink at all. And I don't know if that was a, a matter of conscience, or is that a, a rule with the Witnesses?
0: No, I think that probably falls on the conscience matter spectrum. That's definitely not a rule. What the rule is, is it's about they talk about drunkenness. Mm-hmm. So you're not supposed to be going out and doing trash or whatever, but it's, you know, as far as my experiences have been, it's not a big deal to go have a drink. They don't really hang out, like, in bars and stuff like that, but, you know, if they go out to dinner or something, I have never seen, in my experience, I haven't seen any of them have an issue with having a drink.
1: Okay, that makes sense. And, and so as far as the being rule followers with your experience that you've had with jim and with Sandy that you mentioned that you know when when your family wasn't speaking to you that that sandy still would keep in touch with you, did they strike you as being the strict rule followers uh, as you described it within the within the jehovah's Witnesses or uh, were they more moderate or or do you know
0: I mean I would say they they seem fairly modern to me. I mean, they were definitely, I mean, like you said, Jim was an elder. I mean, they appeared to be, you know, this was genuinely what they believed, you know? But, um, I do remember that, I know that when Liz was disfellowshipped, Liz was disfellowshipped, essentially, um, she was raped. And they, I, she didn't tell. It came out somehow, some other way. And, it was basically insinuated that because she did not scream or anything like that, that it was the same as committing fornication
1: when she was raped.
0: Yeah. And the scripture that was used was one about, I think it, I want to say it's in Deuteronomy, like maybe 23, 24, something like that. But it talks about, um, if a woman doesn't scream, Then she's, you know, basically committing fornication, something about her being stoned, her and the man, or something like that. And that was the scripture that was used. Well, Jim, as an elder, didn't agree with that judgment, you know? And he fought on Liz's behalf, you know, for that not to be the action taken, for her to not be disfellowshipped for that, refused to kick her out of his house. And it's, in the end, I think he stepped down as an elder mm-hmm. because he didn't agree with that. So, I mean, I think that they followed the rules in terms of you know as their faith allowed them to. But when it came down to a matter involving their own family, you know, they went with what they felt was right.
1: Right, and that's and that story just kind of gave me chills just to think about it because it, it may not seem like a big deal to some, but but knowing. The seriousness of the witnesses and, and, and when they disfellowship someone, the fact that Jim, mm-hmm. even being an elder, fought for his daughter and then, and then stepped down and then, cause she was an, was she an adult at that point? Yes. Yeah. And so, so at that point, if, if I understand correctly, correct me if I'm wrong. When she's been disfellowshipped and she's an adult, they're supposed to mm-hmm. completely ex- me, mm-hmm. like kick her out of the house.
0: Yeah, yeah. You're you're basically supposed to have a little if it's your family member, you're supposed to have a little communication with them as is necessary.
1: Okay. And so they didn't do that. So I mean that's it, it may seem trivial, but to me that that speaks volumes toward again that that idea of motive as far as faith is important to them, I think, but mm-hmm. it it sounds to me that that doesn't Trump family for them. And, yes,
0: and, they still had their own minds, and and they went with their conscience.
1: Right, and and they stayed in w- with the witnesses after that, right? Jim and Sandy both, but they just weren't going. That's a rule they weren't going to follow.
0: Right.
1: Yeah, because I know that uh, Liz said that they up until Jim's death, and then and then afterward until Sandy went to prison, still spoke with Sandy on the phone nearly every day. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. So, moving past the, the church, you have also have some more first-hand experience. I mean, you've talked a little bit about, you know, the family and how they were together. You've seen Jim and, and Sandy interact together. From your perspective, and also being very close with Liz, I'm sure, talking about it, mm-hmm. what was your impression of their relationship?
0: I mean, they just always came across to me as just a happy family, you know? Um, they spent a lot of time together, you know, and... It, like I said, when Sandy got sick well when she was first diagnosed with the lupus, um you know Jim was very involved in actively seeking out you know any possible cures or treatments or, or whatever I mean they were just very involved with each other's lives, you know they were close, and I've never even heard Liz ever say anything about her childhood that was you know every story she's ever told has been a positive story about her parents' interactions in her, life, in her life, you know? I mean, just always telling stories about, you know, whether it's, you know, something silly that her dad used to do to her, or a joke that, you know, like I said, whenever we were around them, what I remember about them most is just them laughing. I mean, that's kind of mm-hmm. how I picture them.
1: Yeah, the, everyone I talk to always talks about Jim's sense of humor and mm-hmm. in his Jim in his mm-hmm. jokes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was... I haven't been around Jen, you know, since I was a teenager. So at that point, you know, for me, I think it was uh, just one of those eye rolling sort of. <laughs> <you know. laughs> yeah, that's funny. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. Okay, so now you ended up playing a role with the family during Sandy's trial, didn't you?
0: Right. You know, after Sandy had sent me that, you know, the request on Facebook to be listed as a member of her family, I was just really touched by that. And so I almost felt a, a sort of loyalty towards her, you know, mm-hmm. um, just that, I mean, she had been kind to me. She'd always been kind to me when a lot of people just really didn't bother speaking to me anymore. Mm-hmm. And so Liz had posted on Facebook, you know, she was coming into town. She was needing help with her kids while they were, you know, having the, um, the jury selection and then the trial and she needed a babysitter. So I, uh, I offered to do it and, uh, I was living probably about an hour and a half outside of Houston. So I, it had to be under the conditions that I stay wherever they were staying. Uh And so they were staying with another friend and I would just come into town and, you know, stay there during the duration. And, uh, yeah, so I was there pretty much throughout the whole thing.
1: So what was that experience like? I mean, was was Sandy coming home there every day after trial and, and you guys talking yeah. about the trial and things?
0: Yeah, it was pretty intense. I mean, I don't think that it ever occurred to anyone there that it was even possible that she would have been convicted. And, and so that was mostly what the conversation revolved around was reassuring her because everyone... I mean, we couldn't even imagine that happening. Really, like there didn't seem to be any way that anyone could look at the case and not walk away with at least reasonable doubt. And so, it it wasn't really like a um, scared, sad environment. Um, I mean, there there were sober moments because it's it, it's it is scary. I mean, your fate is in the hands of people you don't know. You know, mm-hmm. but it was really just more you know, everyone kind of comforting each other and saying, you know, don't worry. Like there's no way, there's no way this can
1: happen. And then Liz obviously came and home it, and told you that it did happen.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I remember the morning that they were going for the verdict to hear the verdict and, um, everybody was getting ready and, you know, I mean, it was, it, there was a lot of anxiety in the air. And, um, I remember Sandy was, uh, they were getting ready to leave and she was standing, you know, kind of in this entryway area it had like a, a bench and she was standing there by herself. She just put her shoes on and she kind of stood up and uh, I saw her sort of like put her hand like on her chest and she just sat back down and um, I, I remember somebody like running over to her and hugging her and she kind of started crying for a second and then she just said, I'm okay, I'm okay. Um, she was sort of always trying to comfort Everyone else, and make sure that everyone else was okay. Uh-huh. And uh and then when they got home that afternoon, you know, her, Liz's daughter, was uh she'd been coloring a picture uh, in the kitchen for her grandmother. And so when they walked in, she didn't notice at first that Sandy wasn't with them. And so she ran over there, you know, saying, "Nana, Nana, look what I colored for you." And then she stopped, "Where's Nana?"
1: Oh, God. And I just
0: remember Liz's husband saying, um, "You know, we're gonna we're gonna go upstairs and have a conversation. You know, it's a very sad conversation, and I'm gonna need you to be a big girl, you know." And um, they all went upstairs together to to talk to you know their daughter, and uh, she came back downstairs a little while later, and she started coloring a picture for the police so that they would know that her Nana didn't do anything wrong and that they had made a mistake. With Lucky Land you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky.
0: Play for free at Luckylandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. Eighteen plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: I have one more question for you. Is Sandy Melgar a killer?
0: No. There's no way. I mean I'm a pretty I'm a pretty skeptical person in general. And You know, like, I'm not emotionally tied to this in such a way that I I need her to be innocent or guilty. You know what I mean? Mm hmm It's just, uh, I mean, it, it wouldn't really impact my life other than, you know? But just knowing her and having been around them at all, I mean, I can't imagine anybody would say that that was even a possibility with her. With them. I mean, between her and Jim. I mean, there's just nothing to suggest it. Nothing. And I've never known her to be anything other than a kind, calm, pretty happy person.
1: Stephanie is not an exception to the rule. She is the rule. No one, not us, not the prosecution, and not the police, were ever able to find anyone that would say anything other than the fact that Jim and Sandy were both kind, loving, and patient people. They had a great relationship, and they honored each other. Not a single character witness has ever come forward and said that they can even fathom Sandy killing anyone, much less her husband. To the people who are close to the Melgars, the idea of Sandy being Jim's killer is absolutely preposterous. But at this point, the case for Sandy's innocence is not much different than the case for her guilt circumstantial and speculative. The only way that we're ever going to figure this case out is to take a deep dive into the evidence. And hopefully, if all things go well in Houston, we're going to begin that process next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. And Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com also created our Season 6 logo. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truth and justice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month, And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the -the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is Ben Truth and Justice.